I'm Max Kaiser. This is the Kaiser Report. You know, I've often said that Bitcoin adoption is driven by banks failing and countries failing. And now in Lebanon, they've got a huge crisis. And of course, Bitcoin's come to the rescue. Stacy, Max, we're going to get into Lebanon. But first, I want to have some show notes here. We are still in Los Angeles. It is uh, the busy suburbs where they did film Brady Bunch. So you have a lot of uh, leaf blowers. You do have garbage men. You have all sorts of stuff. And we have flights going overhead as people are trying to flee the coronavirus apocalypse. Uh, we are also going to try to flee the coronavirus apocalypse. And so you may see us recording soon from home because if we can't get out, if everybody's quarantined, it could be a situation where we're just like live streaming on Periscope for the show for the future. Cool. Here's an, a headline from Lebanon that happened in the past week and a half while the markets were tumbling, while everything was going chaotic, and that is distrust in Lebanese banks spurs Bitcoin boom. More Lebanese are embracing the notoriously volatile cryptocurrency as the country's economy founders. So this was in Al Jazeera English, and they looked at after years of being of knowing about Bitcoin, it was only when their country's banks started to fall apart, when their um, the credit default swaps suggest that there's a 99.5% chance of them bank going bankrupt, and banks introduced the same thing that we saw back in 2011 with Cyprus, and they had the bail-ins. First, they had the um, the limit on the amount of money that you could withdraw. So in at Lebanon, we saw something like $40, $50 a day that they're allowed to take out. And they focus on a guy named Mar, who asked for a surname to be withheld. Um, he says he's not standing around helplessly. He is trying to move what is left of his savings out of Lebanon via a financial instrument many in the country have not embraced until recently. Bitcoin, quote, Suddenly, everything turns upside down and all the options are open, said Marr. Right. What's amazing is that this discussion of what's a better store of value, gold or Bitcoin. And in Lebanon, we have a test, test case. People are selling gold to buy Bitcoin. That proves that Bitcoin is a greater and more portable store of value than gold. And that's going to be the story all over the world. People can't take their gold across the border. It's too heavy. It's too obvious they can take Bitcoin. And that's what people are doing. They're fleeing with their Bitcoin, whether it's in China, Lebanon, all over the world. Gold is not the store of value that Bitcoin is. That's why Peter Schiff's under his desk in a fetal position crying. This is why Alex Jones is converted now to being a full Bitcoin bear. This is the new way. So the banks in Lebanon, they have been restricting withdrawals of how much cash you can access. Lebanese banks began imposing increasingly restrictive and formal capital controls after a popular uprising first swept the country more than four months ago. Foreign currency withdrawals are now limited to be between $50 and just a few hundred dollars a month. Transfers abroad were recently capped at $50,000 a year for so-called necessary matters. Well, yeah, I mean, they can try to restrain people from having access to their capital, but that's all the kind of techniques that we saw before Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin is the, you know, it came about because of a divine intervention uh, as part of Gaia, fighting back against the kleptocrats. And they allowed this ultimate hard money to exist to offer a way out of 
banking shenanigans. So that, that this is our savior. Bitcoin is our savior. They quote another young guy who is in Lebanon, and he says, right now, Lebanese are interested in escaping tight restrictions on cash withdrawals and transfers. They basically want financial freedom. So I'm going to cut to a clip here from Las Vegas, where you and I were on stage with some OGs, original gangsters of Bitcoin. And we talked on stage with uh, Peter Todd, Adam Back, Trace Mayer, me and you, and we talked about those early days of Bitcoin in 2011. That's when we uh, first started covering it here on Kaiser Report. And we asked them about what, you know, what it was like in those early days at this point when people in Cyprus first turned to Bitcoin, when we saw the bail-ins in, in Cyprus. And after that bail-in, by the way, it then became law of the land in Europe. So if this crisis, this uh, you know, coronavirus crisis leads to a financial crisis, that is the next plan for Europe. And America can still print its way out, perhaps. But um, let's turn to our event in Unconfiscatable in Las Vegas last week with the controversial uh, Trace Mayer amongst the mix. After January 10th, 2009, when Hal Finney tweeted running Bitcoin, after that time, how important is it that the only people who joined in on this thing with him were the gamers, were the outlaws, were the pornographers, were the freaks? Like, if it had been like KPMG and Fidelity Bank saying, okay, let's, uh, let's get in this together, would it have changed the nature of Bitcoin, do you think? Uh, probably. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a, a history. So Tim May, who was uh, one of the Cypherpunk's list co-founders and was one of the first people to write about related ideas, um, he, uh, he made the point that most innovation comes from the sidelines. So you know, if you want to change, change things, just do, do it. I mean, just build something. If people want to use it, they opt to use it and it changes people's expectations about what they should be able to use. So you know, Skype is another example, right? So Skype got into the telecom industry. If they'd got, and, and telecom sector is regulated, so if they'd gone to the regulator and said, we want to build a voice over IP video system with free international calling, they would have said, no, you can't do it, or the lobby groups would have stopped them. So instead they just did it, and the regulators were too slow, it got too widely used, and they couldn't stop it. So I think Bitcoin, there was something in that area where people just did it. You know, initially it had no value, no no stock, no no exchange price. You know, the ten thousand uh, Bitcoin pizza experiment. So people were just playing with it. I mean, it was a kind of hobbyist thing. I think the fact that you could mine it, it helped add value. There's a psychological phenomena where if something's difficult to do, people ascribe more value to it. It's you know, a fallacy, really. It's kind of labor theory of value, but it's, it's, some people have that intuition. So I think the fact that the mining was difficult, fiddly, and people would uh, exchange tips on how to configure graphics cards to do things made them feel it was valuable, and that maybe had a, a part to play in uh, you know, bootstrapping a value, because it, it had to bootstrap somewhere. So um, I think it's all about uh, you know, permissionless innovation, and then there's a history of um, sort of open source uh, community technology being found to be agile and good and later being adopted for more enterprise uses. I thought, you know, I'd make the point, I, I, I think the kind of list of people who kind of say got into Bitcoin, I think that's actually, you know, much too restrictive. I mean, I, I know financial people who saw Bitcoin and immediately realized, oh yeah, that's a good idea, I'll go buy some. 
you know, and I mean, my dad's in a standard, you know, Keynesian economist. I mean, used to go do consulting for pension plans. And when I first described what Bitcoin was to him, to him his reaction was, well, of course that's valuable. It was just completely obvious to him. Like, you have a limited thing you send over the internet. That's useful. You know, I, I don't actually think like this is that radical of an idea. I think what's more radical is being able to actually do it and pull it off. But, you know, if you do it in a slightly different way, I mean, I think you'd still get a similar kind of outcome. But at that time, uh, you know, they, they show the velocity of Bitcoin from 2009 through present in terms of how often they move. And it, it does look like a lot of those early Bitcoin are lost forever. Or they lost their coins. So it was, that took a while to overcome, I feel like. In 2009, 10, and 11, I mean, these uh, things like Bitcoinica would pop up and uh, somebody would run off with 53,000 coins. And it just felt like a kind of a game that it wasn't real and that maybe it would never have value. It was just a, a, a game. But the notion that something is a game and it's not real yet. Yeah doesn't change who might be interested in playing with it. Yeah. You know, someone like my dad, if they actually knew, knew some technology, and well, frankly he doesn't, but if he had the, you know, the technical um, where I'll actually go do something, I mean, he's the type of person who would. I understand Peter's point that, okay, somebody who's reasonably involved in finance would get it, but I don't understand why people who are into gold don't get it. I don't understand that. I never did. Uh, we, we came into our programming side when gold peaked in 2011. And um, we transitioned to doing heavy Bitcoin coverage because it was gold was no longer a hot topic to talk about because it entered into a very long bear market. So this gave us a programming supplement, if you will. That, and, we, and then we, the more we talked about it, the more access we had to more key people. Who, who would contact us and say, hey, I'm a programmer, I'm a developer, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. So then we just kept putting them on the show. And, and uh, so for, on a programming side, it was great. But how, how do I talk about it to people who are newbies or whatever? You know, I would just, um, it, it, as far as, uh, I, I just found this wall of resistance. I think there's people who either want to be free and there's people who want to be slaves. That's it. So I had actually become an investor in gold money yeah. uh, that Max and I were, were both involved with gold money before Bitcoin even existed. And so I was an investor there in, I think, 2005, 2006 time frame. And then I started a blog, Run to Gold, and I had had breakfast with Dr. Edwin Vieira. And uh, he, had, he gave a talk at the GATA conference, and someone asked, like, well, you know, why, why do we do this? You know, it seems so bleak. We don't have any, any chance to get out from this gold price suppression scheme and the monetary repression and everything. This was 2008, middle of 2008. And Dr. Vieira said, well, I don't want to live in 1956 Czechoslovakia with a boot on my neck. You know, so that's why I got more active blogging about gold and the monetary uh, role that it plays in protecting human rights and civil liberties. Uh, stands as a uh, protector against despotic inroads on the part of governments, as Mises says. And so then when, you know, I came across Bitcoin, it was very natural to merge, uh, at least for me as a digital native, growing up with LimeWire and Kazaa and all BitTorrent and eGold and the digital games and transferring value over communication channels and dealing with chargebacks and trying to get paid for your thing in the game, right? Like, you know, so for me... 
immediately, you know, I was able to to see the implications of of the software code and what it's going to do. <laughs> and so, you know, that's why I kind of picked it up. And uh, actually, on this stage, in uh, in Nick Zabo's first public appearance, I asked him the question, like, you know, what niches should we go after? And he's like, you know, we have to go find particular niches to to sell Bitcoin to. And that's exactly what I'd done. I went to the Libertarians because they uh, are just crazy, and I want them to have a lot of money. <laughs> you don't change Bitcoin. Bitcoin changes you. <laughs> Welcome back to Kaiser Report. Yes, do not worry, Max is still here. I know with the coronavirus, people get worried about that. But we're still here. For this second half, Max, I want to interview you because not only am I afraid to go near anybody else because of the virus, but there was a story in Bloomberg, on Business Week Bloomberg, a long special about a Reddit forum board and the, these Reddit forum boards, uh, it's our Wall Street bets, and the, the allegation that they're manipulating the options markets, in particular, the specialist, the market maker, because this we're in Hollywood still. You created the Hollywood Stock Exchange, uh, and you created the virtual specialist technology. So it covers your entire domain here. And so I want to hear what you have to say about this. Reddit's profane, greedy traders are shaking up the stock market. Chatter on message boards is shaping the options market and sparking wild rallies. Members of RWSB believe they, they have discovered a kind of perpetual motion machine in the interplay of stocks with options contracts, which offer a cheap way to bet on whether shares will rise or fall without buying the stocks itself. It goes like this. Members make bets that rely on market makers. The professional middlemen will sell you a call, a bet on shares rising, or put a wager on a decline. Market makers like good bookies don't want to go out on a limb. When taking a bet, they lay off the risk. If someone buys a call, for instance, speculating on a rally, the dealer buys stocks in the underlying company. If the stock rises, the dealer may have to pay out on the option, but that's offset by the gain on the shares. They believe that they found a secret formula to rig the markets. Um, so that their call options basically force the market makers to have to buy supply of the stock. And, and of course, this is before the huge market crash. So, uh, you know, they were betting on stock prices like Tesla or Virgin Galactic continuing to go up and rigging the options market that way. Do you believe it was working? <laughs> well, that's not a new scam. Uh, but I would say this is the democratization of a certain style of market manipulation. So up until this group, which has access to 0% commissions on trades and access to huge pools of very, very cheap capital, this game was played amongst market makers themselves. So this is typically the way market makers try to game theory each other. And if we talk to Rick Ackerman, who was a specialist in Chicago for many years, he's been on the show a few times, and we've talked about the games that market makers play in the options market in between specialists. So they have the dubious task of maintaining an inventory of stock to uh, fulfill orders or to hedge their book of trades that they're allowing to, to be made. So this scam, it's uh, the idea that you're forcing the options market maker to go in the market and pay for a stock 
uh, to give him the requisite hedge against these um, call options that are being uh, created. Because in the options market, there's not a finite degree of options. It's what's called open interest. So the open interest will expand or contract depending on supply and demand. So if there's a huge expansion of the open interest in the call options in this case, uh, this would require the specialists to uh, hedge their risk of making these markets to, ex to expand their inventory by going into the open market to buy the stock. So, so you've got a gang of folks on Reddit who are able to trade options and they're swarming so you can and, and options if they're out of the money options they're very cheap right so there might if it's a hundred dollar stock the option if it's out of the money might be worth you know you could be 50 cents or 25 cents so you've got a swarm it could be thousands they swarm on a 25 cent option they're going to now expand that open interest with very little capital they do put up some capital but it's very little capital it's distributed over this gang this manipulation gang and uh, so, the, so the specialist is forced to buy stock in the open market. So you can therefore capitalize on this, this gaming the system and, and cash in. It does require everyone who's participating in this to, to operate as a cartel and they can't cheat on each other. Typically what will happen is if there is a market correction as we're seeing, one or two will break the cartel, they'll cash out quick and then everyone else will lose money. So it's not without risk. Uh, it's only riskless if the cartel is operating completely together, and that, of course, never happens in a system. You never have a, uh, you never have a cartel that's not doesn't encourage at least one or two to cheat. That's why Bitcoin ultimately will go to 100,000, because there's no way for the central banks to create a successful cartel against it. Unlike in the precious metals market, where they have created a successful cartel to knock down the price of gold, they will never be able to do it on Bitcoin, uh, for a variety of reasons. Well, indeed. So, so, I mean, you used to be, aside from Hollywood Stock Exchange and the virtual specialist technology, you were an options trader it, it, when you worked on Wall Street. So you, you know this market, but the article points out that, and again, this is before the, the fastest sell-off in S&P 500 history. That's the fastest sell-off in 124 years. So I'm, I'm sure this entire subreddit these subbies here, they all got wiped out. But before this, uh, it, it was an interesting take on all the sort of technologies that you have, in, in fact, in, invented or worked with. Um, they mentioned that usually the market is dominated by put options because people are, you know, hedge funds or, or banks buy shares for their clients and they're thus long that and they need to short it just for protection for a hedge um, but now in the first few weeks of this year there has been definitely a lopsided number of call options and they say the forum's zest for call options is a key force behind a broad market trend by one measure the value of options traded rose 77 percent over the first six weeks of 2020 much of this expansion was concentrated in a handful of stocks popular among individual investors said john marshall head of derivatives research at Goldman Sachs. He said, quote, the size of the increase in options volume is definitely moving the needle. It's a variation, if you will, in the theme that Greg gave us the stock market crash of 1987. Because in 87, you had a product, and I was working on Wall Street at the time, the product was portfolio insurance. So you have a million dollar portfolio and you can hedge that portfolio by buying options that spend one or 2% of your capital. And this way, if the market were ever to crash 10, 15, 20%, the most you could lose would be the value of that option, which would be one or 2%. So what happened is that there was Chicago, which is the uh, futures market and the options market versus New York, which is the cash market. They got locked into contention where the amount of hedge that was required 
required to cover the underlying cash market was out of whack due to a technological uh, contention in this massive database, and it created a meltdown. So you had this massive sell-off in 1987, 22 and almost 23% collapse in one day on October 19th, 1987. Here, it's similar in that what they're doing is they're forcing a contention in the in, in the risk profile of the specialist by forcing him to take on risk that to match his books by not buying puts in this case, but by buying calls. So it's kind of like the inverse of what happened in 1987. So you're creating a melt up. So they, they've created an artificial melt up with the derivatives market that, you know, the options are a derivatives market. People say, what is a derivative? It's an option, essentially. Those are, that's the option market that was invented in late 70s, early 80s, the listed options market. That is the derivatives market. And so if you, we've seen many, much, much, much abuse in many, many different ways. This is just the latest. I could cite 20 different instances of massive derivatives abuse. I mean, we talk a, a lot about Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan using options and derivatives to sell naked shorts to bang down the price of gold. That's, that's the, so in other words, you're democratizing what Jamie Dimon does on the institutional level to make money by fraudulently making money, by manipulating the price of gold using derivatives and options. You're giving kids on Reddit that ability using 0% commissions and access to a lot of you know, pool capital cheaply to game the specialists to create manipulation in the options market. So they're just mimicking Jamie. That's the problem with moral hazard. If you let a Jamie Godiman manipulate markets and just give him a slap on the wrist, you give him a fine that he can then fund from his open window at the Fed that he gets money for zero, you're saying to your society, you're saying to your public, fraud is okay. Breaking the law is okay. Stealing is okay. And so you're going to end up with kids on Reddit mimicking Jamie Dimon by perpetrating massive fraud in the derivatives market. And uh, it's completely predictable. I might add that the article suggests that some of the high-frequency traders who have you know, hundreds of billions of dollars at their access and very fast trading machines have been like plugged into these Reddit groups apparently and trading on it before these kids, whoever is in these groups, being like 4chan, acting like they have a big portfolio and they probably only have a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks. You know, they are big uh, traders trading on this stuff. And it does make you wonder because in January, you and I were covering here in Kaiser Report. And yeah, sure, maybe Americans don't really know much news that happens outside of America, especially in a political season when they're all concerned about, you know, what's going on with the, the domestic politics and the, the primaries. But you and I were noting like the whole supply chain was cracking across China and you know there was a pandemic clearly on the way and we kept on noting that the market just kept going up and up and up and it made no sense and it was driven by a few of the shares mentioned in this article including Tesla uh, Virgin Galactic some of these companies that were directly tied to this uh, Wall Street bets forum board so it, it could have been that we don't know and we'll probably never know because of the catastrophe now unfolding so we'll never know because there won't be time to do a, a you know an autopsy well why does America offshore all of its production capacity to China including medicine right and so the coronavirus hits and suddenly all that manufacturing is in a hostile state so so because we allow things like high-frequency trading to go and without penalty for that scheme, which is also criminal activity, you're stealing. But we say, like Lloyd Blankfein, Lloyd Blankfein at Goldman Sachs at the time said we needed to create liquidity for the markets, which is false. He's, he's outright lying when he says that. 
it's it's about it's about pilfering. It's about larceny. He's just stealing liquidity from the market, and and so the that money that Lloyd Blankfein at J, at Goldman Sachs or J P Morgan steals, it doesn't go into the productive economy. It doesn't go into building factories so we can create our own medicine. It goes into Hamptons Estates. It goes into Picasso's. It goes into Swiss chalets. So they're like, we're so smart. We stole billions. We bought a Picasso. It went up. And all of our drug manufacturing in China made by slaves. Okay, coronavirus hits. And they're like, um, we never saw it coming. That's a lie. Uh, we um, are, uh, need more liquidity. We need to print more money. That's also a lie. Um, we're now going to retire, take all of our options, and run away as any coward like Blankfein or, or the, the, you know, Iger, the head of Disney, or all these CEOs. They're all frickin' cowards running away after they committed massive fraud for 20, 30 years. Well, actually, I just want to jump in there because during the 2008 to 2010, 2007, 2010 financial crisis, it was all the big guys left holding the bags at that point. And at the, in terms of today, not only do you see a lot of the CEOs have fled in the last you know, quarter or two, so you've seen them flee, and the, who was owning all these bags in the market as it crashed? Well, it was a retail, and in fact, even in the options market, they mentioned the average number of contracts purchased in a single stock option trade shrunk to just 6.7 contracts in 2020, roughly half of what it was in 2015. So really, retail is the only audience, they say, in this. So they're the ones holding the bags. Will we have a... Will we have a bailout for these people if it's just retail? Because if the system doesn't care about retail, you know, in terms of uh, of a overloaded hospital system and coronavirus, or an overloaded Fed system, and in terms of financial collapse, they're going to protect their friends, right? They're going to protect those who they care about most. Option traders, there's no bailout for option traders. You know, here's a thought: the market could drop 50% from here, and we'd still be in a bull market. Until next time, Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert saying, check us out on Twitter, Kaiser Report. Bye, y'all. At American University, we don't just hope for change. We create it. We don't just dream of a better world. We make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout D.C. to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool.